Hello there, and welcome to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. My name is Richard Frankowitz, and I'm the youth director here at Sardis Fellowship Baptist Church. This week, Pastor Rod Happel starts a new mini-series called Fear and Doubt, Enemies of Faith. Thanks for listening, and enjoy. So we are looking at, you know, the things that do enslave us, of which fear and doubt are, are two of those. Uh, there are many things. Emotions are a very powerful thing in our life. Uh, we're going to be kind of looking at this over the next two weeks, um, just the, the way in which we face doubt and fear and anxiety and how it intersects with our faith. Uh, you know, sometimes we feel just tired and we get overwhelmed and then we start to think hopeless thoughts about a situation. Uh, it can be simple things like, you know, you're hungry and all of a sudden you're just negative and cranky. But then there's things that we actually get afraid of. And I'm not sure how fear and doubt work, but they seem to partner together. I don't know if you fear something and then you doubt, or if you doubt something and then you are afraid, but they seem to go hand in hand. Um, When we're uncertain about something, we can feel apprehensive. And when we don't know about something, we start to worry. And I'm no expert in these things. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a trained counselor. But I am a human like you who lives through this world. And we face kind of this shared experience of the things that we battle against as we go through life. And as followers of Jesus Christ, I think we do wonder at times, how does our faith impact our emotions, or conversely, how do our emotions impact our faith? Uh, We read a lot in the Bible about fear not, or do not be afraid. I went to the Google, and it tells me that 365 times the Bible tells us to fear not. I figured, wow, that's one for every day of the year. I don't know if that's the plan of God, but it seems to work. Fear not. But we do. Be anxious for nothing. Really? Nothing? How do you do that? Don't doubt. Just believe. Don't be double-minded. Oh, man. How do we do that? Have we failed? So there are for sure um, situations in life that I would say are extreme. That people go through situations that you would go, how could you not be afraid? How could there not be anxiousness or fear or doubt or all those kinds of things that are kind of more on the extreme level that people do face. They wouldn't quite be the common ones. And and maybe it's, um, you know, to varying degrees of how you might feel fear and doubt and anxiety in your life based on your makeup, your personality, or your life experience. And and so everyone has kind of a relationship that you're predisposed to these emotions that we commonly share, but maybe one over another is your issue. But here's where I'm wanting to go. Faith is trusting God with the uncertainties of life. And we all have them. Faith is trusting God with the uncertainties of life when we don't know the future. And we don't know the future. So that's one that, of course, we have an uncertainty over. And today what I want to do is just look at one individual from the Old Testament. He's well-known. His name is Elijah. Maybe he's one of your favorites. Um, I think a lot of people like him because there's a significant amount written about him, and so you kind of feel like you get to know this person a little bit, right? Um, The story of Elijah incorporates uh, an element of doubt that I want to bring out in his life story. Now, next week, our son Brendan, uh, who's home from Briarcrest, and he preached in one of his preaching classes this last year, and it was on fear. And so I asked him if he'd be willing to preach next Sunday a message on fear. So we're kind of doing part one, part two. And so, lucky you, you get my son next week, and we're excited about that. And many of you have prayed for him as he's been in his four years of study at Briarcrest, and thank you for that. Now, I love Elijah, as I said. Um, I'm going to give a quick thumbnail sketch of Elijah, the times in which he lived, and what leads me to the the focal point of what I want us to see here today. He's one of those Old Testament characters that kind of stands out. 
Uh, you know, you hear of Abraham, you hear of Moses, you hear of Elijah, you hear of David, right? Those kinds, he's right in that kind of camp of the big names of the Old Testament. He's one of these characters that's a bit larger than life because God does powerful and amazing miracles through him. So he stands out, you know, wow, that is not ordinary. And yet there is something about him that is very ordinary. Um, he's very human. And we might think of these Old Testament characters who God uses greatly as superhuman but they're just humans. And it's good for us to remember that. In the New Testament, James, the brother of Jesus, actually writes this about Elijah in James 5.17. I'm not going to give you the rest of the context, but he says, Elijah was as human as we are. This is the New Living Translation. Yours might say it slightly differently, but the emphasis is on the fact that Elijah is human. Why is James saying he's human when we know he's human? I think is because we slip sometimes and think they're superhuman because God used them in such an amazing way. And what I think we're going to see is, yes, there's greatness, but there's great weakness. He is not superhuman. And I think that James is picking up on that humanity that is evident in the story of Elijah, which we're going to look at today. Now, Elijah was a prophet at the time of King Ahab in Israel. Uh, Ahab was married to Jezebel, as you might know, and she was a very wicked woman. The nation of Israel had been split at this time into two kingdoms. You had the kingdom down in the south of Judah and Benjamin and their capitals in Jerusalem and then up in the north, or if I wanted to do it right, up in the north, down in the south. You have the ten tribes of Israel with their capital in Samaria. Uh, they divided after Solomon, right? King Solomon, they were still united, one kingdom, Jerusalem the capital. Now they're divided. Ahab is the king of the northern region, and Elijah is the prophet, the servant of the Lord, who is to go and speak to King Ahab and to the nation of Israel. Not a fun job to have at that time in Israel. What had happened was that King Ahab and his wife Jezebel had led the nation of Israel into worship of pagan idols. Um, it had already started with Jeroboam before him, but only that much more so in the time of Ahab. And actually, his wife Jezebel was the one who brought in the, the practice of worshiping Baal. Uh, B-A-A-L, Baal. He was this god that the pagans worshipped. And Jezebel, his wife, was responsible for bringing that element of worship to Israel. It's interesting, certain names in the Bible that people don't name their children anymore. I don't hear of too many people naming their child Jezebel. I don't hear much... Cain's or Judas either. But then again, no one names your kid Rod anymore. Praise God for that. Done. Rod Stewart. Yeah. He's 80. Baal was the universal fertility god. He was the one that controlled the weather, supposedly, and that by offering sacrifices to him, you keep him happy. He brings the rains so that crops grow. That's the fertility element that's there. Now, there was a counterpart to Baal, the female version almost of, of him, the male version, and that was Asherah. And these two went together. You had prophets for Baal. You had prophets for Asherah. Uh, she was known kind of as the goddess mother of fertility, the queen of the heavens. And so together you kind of have this male-female idea that as long as you keep them happy, the rains come, you get crops, you can make a living. Of course, all of this denies the rightful place of the true and living God over Israel. That it is the true and living God who brings the rains and no other concept or idea of a God. The first two commandments of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me, number one. 
And of course, we look back on that and we go, how did they get that wrong so fast and so often? But we know we struggle with that as well. You shall have no other gods before me. And number two, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth below. So don't fashion an idea of your concept of God and worship it. The practice of pagan worship was not just misguided. It was actually perverse and grotesque, including such things as temple prostitution and to certain gods offering your children in the sacrifice of the fire. So these are horrible things, horrible and detestable practices that we can't even imagine today. And so Elijah is sent to the nation of Israel, in particular King Ahab, to bring this message. On his first message, when he comes to him, he makes this incredible claim where he says to Ahab, there will be no rain and no dew in the land except until my word, until I say so, based on the word of the Lord that was sent to him in the first place. Quite confident there, you know. Uh, Elijah knew God, he knew his command, and he went. Now, three more or less years later, he is coming back to Ahab. There has been no rain in the land. There is a severe famine in the area of Samaria where King Ahab is reigning. So they're feeling the full pressure of the words that Elijah had spoken. And his first words out of his mouth from Ahab to Elijah when he sees him is, You troubler, you who make trouble for Israel. And Elijah says, No. It's not me who makes trouble for Israel. I'm not the one who steered the hearts of the people away from the true and the living God. It's you, King Ahab. And so a contest kind of um, rises up between Ahab and Elijah. And Elijah says, you gather all the prophets of Baal, 450 or Baal, and you gather all 400 of Asherah. We're going to go up Mount Carmel. You meet me there. We're going to have a contest. Ahab does that. They gather up on this mountain, Mount Carmel, not Mount Caramel. That's a different mountaintop experience. Mount Carmel. Very disappointing. Elijah went before the people, it says, and he said, how long will you waver between two opinions? What's the two opinions? Well, who brings the rains? You've had three years of famine. Is it Baal? Or is it the God of Israel? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Elijah proposes this contest. They like the idea. They set up two altars, the one to their God, and Elijah's going to restore the one that had been broken down to the God of Israel. There's 450 of these prophets who begin to um, entreat their God to come and bring the fire down, because that's the contest. Whosoever God can bring fire down on top of the altar and burn up the sacrifice, that'll be the one that determines who the true and living God is. This is a pretty you know, definitive way to prove who's really the God of the heavens, the God of the elements, the God of the weather. And so they like it, but nothing's happening. You probably know the story well. I'm not going to go into the details, but they do all those kinds of practices of trying to entreat their God by cutting themselves with swords and spears until the blood flows, the passage says, and then it's Elijah's turn. And Elijah, who has given them the advantage of going first, then takes water and has water dumped three times onto his sacrifice, builds a trench around the altar and fills that with water. And then he prays. He prays and God answers. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate, face first, and cried out, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And you would think a revival has just started in Israel. I mean, that's how it sounds. Elijah then has them take the 450 prophets of Baal and puts them to death. 
Then he goes and he prays, and he prays seven times until a servant says, I see a small cloud the size of a man's fist coming off the Mediterranean Sea. And Elijah warns Ahab, get down off this hill because a storm is coming. I hear the, th- the sound of thunder. You know, like it's coming. And so uh, Eli- Elijah sends Ahab down the hill. But then it says this about Elijah. The power of the Lord came on him and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Okay, this is crazy story stuff, right? This is the stuff that makes you go, wow, this is why James says he was human like us. Why? Because it doesn't seem like he's human like us because if he can call down fire from heaven, if he can pray and it rains, and if he can run faster than chariots and get down ahead of the hill, that's not my skill set. You know, I don't have that. What a story. What a victory. What a mountaintop experience. And you would think that at this point that Elijah is pretty much invincible. I mean, what are people talking about on the streets of of Israel about him? You know, he's the greatest, right? He's the great prophet. He's the one who called down. He should never have to fear again. I I remember years ago, I was uh, in grade nine. I've told this story before, but I'll tell it again because it was my moment of wanting to call fire down out of heaven. But I was in grade nine, and this friend of mine, friend, he was a classmate, it's lunchtime, we're out on the kind of soccer field on the edge, and he comes up to me and he starts engaging me. Hey, happy you're a Christian? I'm like, yeah. You go to church, yeah. You believe in God, yeah. And I can kind of tell in the tone of the voice there's a bit of mockery. So you think I'm going to hell, he says. And I'm like, well, the Bible talks about the fact that anyone who believes in Jesus is their child and, and goes to heaven. Yes, and those who reject Jesus, they go to hell. And then all of a sudden, he raises his voice like this and goes, hey, everyone, get a load of this. And all of a sudden, a crowd starts to gather. Heppel says I'm going to hell. And he starts creating this big thing. I thought we were having a private little conversation, but it went public really fast. And I remember him looking at me going, Hep, if there's a God, prove it. And I was just like sitting there like, how do you prove God in like the next 30 seconds? (laughs) And I remember my thought was, yeah, I want to call down fire like Elijah out of heaven and burn out the garbage in the garbage can. But I didn't have that word from the Lord that gave me the confidence to do that. So I remain pretty much uh, silent. How do you prove that God exists in a moment like that? Well, Elijah proved it. And those people did, for a time, shout, the Lord, the Lord, he is God. You'd think that Elijah would never doubt again his faith in a God who can do that. Um, First of all, who's going to mess with him, right? If you're the guy that calls on fire out of heaven, no one's going to taunt you or mock you. Who is this guy? But it changes really quickly. Chapter 19. So chapter 17 and 18 is kind of all that build up to this. Now Ahab, and this is right on the heels of the event in chapter 18. Now Ahab told Jezebel, his wife, everything that Elijah had done and how he'd killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. (laughs) what would you expect that Elijah would do if that messenger came? You know, my first thought was the messenger arrives, he delivers this to Elijah, and he goes, oh, yeah? Bring it on, sister. You want to see fire? Like, wouldn't you think that this guy's confidence is just, all right, I showed your husband. uh, You weren't present. I'll show you too. But it's not like that. (sighs) Elijah was afraid. It actually says Elijah could see. And there's some interpretation around this. But it seems like Elijah could see, like he could see what was going to happen. He could see the writing on the wall. He could see the situation that was forming before him. 
Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba, which was 120 miles south in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and he prayed. What's his prayer? Elijah, what's your prayer of great faith? And he prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. What had happened to Elijah's incredible faith? Right? Just seemed to vanish. I, I don't think that we're unfamiliar with this because I think we have highs and lows in our faith as well. I think we see the times in which God has worked and we're like, wow, we know he can do anything. And then there's times where we wonder if he can do it again. I mean, those testimonies last week from Adult Teen Challenge, were they not amazing? Um, so we had uh, Adult Teen Challenge here last week, both the Men's Center and the Women's Center, and we got to hear two lengthy testimonies and then four more shorter testimonies. And they were so powerful because they, they helped you understand that in the middle of what seems to be a hopeless situation, God shows up with power and he changes life, lives. It is ironic here that Elijah is actually running from a defeated enemy. He's already shown the power of God over the enemy and defeated, but now he's on the run. He had confidence when he knew what the word of the Lord was, but at the moment that he didn't know the word of the Lord, he lacked confidence. It's interesting that he obeyed the word of the Lord every time. If you were to go read these three passages, you'll see multiple times the word of the Lord came to Elijah and he spoke it. Okay, And now we have a situation where he's not even seeking God for what the word of the Lord would be about this message that comes from Jezebel. Rather, he seems to take matters into his own hands, which is, that's a threat, i got to get out of here, and he runs 120 miles south. What does Elijah say here? I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Now, I had to ponder that because I'm like going... I don't know that that quite computes to me. What's going on in his life here that he's landing there? What is this line, I'm no better than my ancestors? How does that relate to the whole experience? And so I had to do some work on this one to kind of see. But you got to put your mind, you got to get the context of the mindset of Elijah. Here he is, the prophet of God. God's called him. He's like, he says, I'm the only one. Now there are others. But he is the only one that is actually verbally speaking and going to Ahab and <clears throat> being sent by God with these messages that seem to be really challenging to speak. So get into his mindset. He's braved up to do it. He's done it, seen the power of God. People are repenting, it seems. And then right on the heels of that, maybe he expected that Ahab and Jezebel would also say, the Lord, the Lord has answered. He is God. Like the people were up on Mount Carmel, but it didn't happen. The next thing he hears is that Jezebel is sending a messenger saying, I'm going to kill you. And maybe it's tipped the scales a bit for him to think, what? The reform is not going to happen. We are not going to go back to the glory days of Israel, serving the Lord and believing in him. Maybe he is completely distraught over the fact that the change he had hoped to happen wasn't going to happen. That he had failed. I mean, that's what he said. I'm no better than my ancestors. Well, first of all, God didn't ask you to be better than your ancestors. He asked you to bring the word of the Lord to the people. That was your role, Elijah. And I think we do that as well. We step out of our lane into God's lane. And God is only asking us to be faithful. He's not asking us to change the world. He will change the world through us as we're faithful. Elijah, just be faithful to the calling I have. Speak my word. That's all I ask of you. I didn't say that you had to be the one who created this reform and brought about the revival in Israel. 
And Elijah concludes that he's no better than those who have gone before him. You know, we can relate to failure. Um, could be in our own spiritual lives. Could be in our raising of our children. If they don't walk with the Lord, we beat ourselves up over that or make wrong decisions and we think it's our fault. Uh, could be that we're working with a person and they're, you know, reading the Bible and you're doing a study with them and then all of a sudden they stop and they no longer want to do the study and they pull away. Uh, there's all these different ways in which we can look and say, it's not working the way it's supposed to. It didn't happen the way I expected it to. We can feel just like Elijah, where it was pointless. It's, there's no purpose to what I'm doing. And, and that's why Elijah's run. He's no longer in the place where God wanted him to be. He's gone 120 miles south. But we need to also understand something. Elijah was confronting with God. He needed to know that God was in control and he wasn't. So that's one lesson we can take from that. But Elijah was exhausted. You know, he had been up on this hill physically that was exhausting, emotionally, spiritually. All of this had gone on. And now all of a sudden, he gets this threat. He interprets it through that lens of failure and he runs. He's exhausted. And this is what happens. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals in a jar of water. He ate and drank, and then he lay down again to go back to sleep. The angel of the Lord, which is often a reference to Jesus in the Old Testament, came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he now traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, out in the desert, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. What I notice here is in Elijah's exhaustion, in the faulty thinking that he had, in this lack of faith in his prayer, take my life, I'm no better than, and all that sort of stuff, he doesn't get the chastisement of God, not right then and there. He gets the ministry of God. He gets ministered to. You need sleep. You need food. <laughs> Do you ever find sometimes that we just need sleep and food? We're trying to process things at the wrong time. Ann and I noticed this over the years that sometimes you're going to bed and there's this little kind of issue, you know, those little kind of issues. And you try to resolve it last thing at night. And you're sitting there and with every word that comes out of your mouth, oh, it gets taken the wrong way. So now you're spending more time trying to explain what you said over the issue that was. And it goes back and forth, back and forth. And finally you kind of offer some kind of lip service apology and you go to sleep. And you wake up in the morning and you look at each other. And you go, why was that such a big deal last night? <laughs> why? And I think it has to do often with our physical tiredness. I think when we're physically tired, I don't think we think clearly about life and situations. And I think that's what happened to Elijah. He wasn't thinking clearly. Anne came across this first, and she gave it to me. Now, this is the NLT version, the New Living Translation, which is a great translation. Psalm 4.4, don't sin by letting anger control you. Think about it overnight and remain silent. And she goes, oh! There, our verse. <laughs> you know, don't let the sun go down on your anger and you try to iron it out. Well, there's another way to maybe do that. And maybe sometimes we're hungry, we're tired, we're emotionally spent, we're not in a good place and we're trying to make hard decisions and it's not best. He was exhausted. He needed a good night's sleep. Um, nothing ever seems right when you're exhausted. Whatever Elijah was thinking about his personal failure, failure that had led, there was fear and there was doubt mixed into this equation. It led to isolation because he removed himself and he ran, right? There's self-pity going on because he talks about, I am the only one. He needs to just simply trust God. 
Elijah was as human as we are, and we're seeing his humanity in this situation. I think there's application for us. But the Lord didn't see it that way. After he tenderly cares for him, he asks Elijah this question. What are you doing here, Elijah? (laughs) That's a good question. Yes, Elijah, what are you doing here at Mount Horeb? You have now traveled 120 miles south. I'm sorry I'm using miles. I'm not quick with kilometers. I'm that old. And then into the desert, another about 200 miles. So this is a long journey, 40 days. He goes to the Mount Horeb. It seems like he's going on a retreat. Go back to where Moses was when God met Moses on the mountain, and there's this encounter. Moses is leading the nation of Israel. Elijah's trying to lead the nation of Israel. All that kind of correlation between Moses and Elijah, and he's on that mountain, and God says, what are you doing here? And it was Elijah's unbelief and his fear that had led him into the desert. And I think sometimes it's our unbelief and our fear that leads us into spiritual deserts, where we get ourselves into bad places because we're letting fear and doubt override simple trust in God, with the uncertainties of life. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Okay, he's feeling sorry for himself, right? That's how he feels. Good. He expressed it. Got it off his chest. We need to do that sometimes. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. You might also recognize that language with Moses, right? In the cleft of the rock, here Elijah in a cave. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. Okay, pause for a second. If you were there and you saw that, that's a pretty strong wind, right? that's, That's freaky power, okay? Freaky power, you can quote me on that. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Again, you might recognize these elements of wind and fire and earthquake as also being the similar experience of the presence of God that was displayed on the same mountain to Moses. The difference here, though, is Moses was pleading with God to not wipe out the people of Israel because they had already turned back to the idols. And Elijah's pretty much bailed on the nation of Israel. But having similar experiences encounter with this God, but what comes out of it? Again, the question asks him, what are you doing here? Again, Elijah does not change his position. And he says the same answer. Then the Lord speaks to him and says, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. Pause there for a second. When we get ourselves in the desert, when we let fear and doubt overwhelm us, we need to go back to where we last knew God wanted us. God hadn't commanded him to go down to Beersheba and then out to Mount Sinai. That was his own doing. God met him there along the way. But this was Elijah doing Elijah's thing. And the first word God says to him, you're not done. You're still my servant. I need you to go back. There's more work to be done. But you see, Elijah didn't know that. With the uncertainties of life are the uncertainties of the future, and he doesn't know that there's a plan of God still that's enacted because what he's just witnessed is a failure. It didn't happen. And God says, go back and do three things. You're going to anoint the king of Aram, you're going to anoint the king of Israel, and you're going to anoint Elisha as my next prophet. You know, God was going to do that anyways. 
Elijah didn't know it. And the parallel for me is when I don't know something and I begin to fear and doubt and I get into the same place of despair that Elijah was in, I need to remember I simply need to trust God because he is a God in control. He is a God who has a plan. He is a God who's going to see it through. I'm not. I'm not. I have a few years on this planet. My job is to be faithful with the word of God that comes to me in my heart, how to live that out in my relationships, on my street, in my community, where I work and live. That's what God asks of me. I can't bear the weight of the world and the things that go sideways and the sin problems that there are, but we often do. And if I allow the despair of the world to overshadow me so that I end up where Elijah was, take my life, it doesn't count for anything, I can't accomplish what you want me to do, and we give up, that's no good. And that's not what God asks of us. He asks us simply to trust him. We need to trust God with the uncertainties in our life. So how do I summarize this story? I see a man just like us in Elijah, who while God used him in great and mighty ways, was also a, a human who faced situations that caused him to doubt and fear just like we do. Faith is trusting God with the uncertainties in life. And when we, I think, try to control what we can't control, our anxiety level comes up. When our anxiety level comes up, we become hyper-vigilant to try to control something. It doesn't work. And again and again, God invites us back to one simple thing. Walk by faith. Trust me. And that's where I want us to land here today. Can you trust God with the unknowns in your life? I know there's a lot in the New Testament that's written about fear and doubt and anxiety. These are the words of Jesus. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And we answer, no. No. I invite you, whatever it is that's going on in your life, to visually surrender it to God and say, I'm giving it to you. I am not going to allow that doubt and that fear and that anxiety to control me any longer. I leave it at your feet. You know, God is so good to us. He promises to be with us to the very end of the age. He hasn't left us. He's still with us. I invite the worship team to come up at this time as we sing a closing song, which sings about the fact that God himself doesn't let go of us. So often we picture ourselves holding on to God as we're being dragged through life. I want you to picture God having his hand upon you as he takes you through life. He's never let go of us. Jesus has not left us as orphans. He has sent the promised Holy Spirit who lives and dwells within us. You are not alone. You are not isolated in this world. God will never let go of you. Thanks for listening to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please check out sardisfellowship.com. Have a great day and God bless.